Hi, welcome to the APAP podcast. I'm Corinne Young, your host today. And with me is Corey from National Jewish Health in Denver. She's been with National Jewish since 2003 and started in basic science research and is now practicing as a nurse practitioner with the interstitial lung disease team and the breathing exercise clinic team, which is one of the things we're talking about today. She has a unique background in both basic science and clinical research, which has informed her interest in clinical medicine. Her past basic science research includes asthma, airway hyperresponsiveness, cystic fibrosis, and lung cancer. Her past clinical research includes COPD and interstitial lung disease. Presently, she's interested in how research translates into personalized medicine. Her clinical focus is mainly ILD and shortness of breath while exercising, but she also sees general pulmonary patients as well. Today, Corey and I are going to dive into a two-part series on tertiary care workups of those patients who are short of breath without clear etiology and require further evaluation. In this episode, we're going to be diving into diagnostics, specifically exercise testing. So thank you, Corey, for coming on today and sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, friend. I'm excited. So exercise testing, I know this is not something we generally do in community practice. This is something that if I feel like a patient has breathlessness that we really can't um, maybe get a hold of, maybe we can't control, maybe we aren't even sure if we you know, have the right diagnosis for this patient. Sometimes I'm referring them off to tertiary care um, because we don't really have the best access to exercise testing. So talk to us about what exactly is exercise testing. Yeah. Now, exercise testing is a way to evaluate cardiopulmonary performance. So it allows the provider to better distinguish between a respiratory limitation or a cardiac limitation during exercise. Because sometimes we don't know, like, what is causing the shortness of our uh, breath in patients? Is it the heart? Is it the lungs? Is it a combination of the two? And I think when people hear exercise testing, um, they think of a typical six-minute walk test or an oxygen titration test. And these tests are great places to start, especially in your local clinic. Um, but it gets more confusing when those tests are normal and the patients feel like their needs aren't being met because they're still short of breath. And they do need more sophisticated approach to exercise testing that actually really recreates their symptoms. And that's where the exercise testing fits in. So who would you say is a, a perfect patient? Can you, like the, of the referrals that you get, who are the patients that definitely you should consider for exercise testing? Yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, in the exercise clinic, we say we want to help everyone exercise better. That's our motto. And so anyone who wants to exercise better fits that category. Um, but more specifically, what patients do you see maybe in your clinic that would fit that profile? is any patient whose baseline testing is normal. So you're, like their pulmonary function testing is normal, their walk testing is normal, maybe they had some stress tests that seem normal, or maybe kind of present with some confusing results where mm, you're like walking a fine line between normal and not. And they keep saying, like, no, I'm short of breath when I exert myself, and I know the testing's normal, but I still don't feel right. And these patients can be anybody from, you know, extreme athletes, like people who love to run marathons. Um, it could be, you know, the common athlete who likes to hike with their family. It could be non-athletic people at all, but present with comorbidities um, such as COPD. Even um, interstitial lung disease, we'll, we'll see patients' shortness of breath really out of proportion to 
you know, the testing that we see, and they would be good candidates as well. All right. So let's talk about now what are the different types of exercise testing. I know oftentimes in in our, not even our facility, but the hospital system that's kind of adjacent to ours that does offer exercise testing, there's only one option for us. And so I was pretty shocked to learn there's different types of exercise testing. So what types are there? Yeah, there there actually is. So I'm I'm wondering, is the more common option you hear about, well, a patient's called the bike test. Is is that what you have in yes. the hospital close to you? Yeah. So typically when you say exercise testing, patients say, is that the bike test I heard about? And yes, so that's the most common, well-known cardiopulmonary exercise test. It is done on a bicycle um, with or without an arterial line. And what this testing, so across the board, there are some general commonalities that all exercise testing gives us. And it's important to know that, uh, like, what are we assessing across the board? No matter what the exercise test is, what you're looking for is the ability to increase workload so that you can actually have a maximal exertional test. Remember, we're trying to recreate symptoms here. So we have to ask the patient, you know, this is a maximal exercise test. I need you to max out your body. And that can be pretty scary. So we do have like a safe environment for them to do that. And it's a great way during this test to measure physiological response to exertion or to exercise. So we're watching their heart rate. We're assessing their stroke volume, their tidal volume, their ventilatory frequency as they respond to exercise. We can also see their anaerobic threshold, their peak oxygen consumption. And this is a hot one here. It's called the VO2 max. A lot of people have heard about that. And the ventilatory efficiency for carbon dioxide um, or what their gas exchange is doing. So when you think about just in general, like cardiopulmonary exercise testing, all three tests we're going to talk about assess those things. Now, when we get a person on the bike, how do we measure their exertional workload is through their pedaling. So the more that they pedal against this workforce, we can maximize their exertion and hopefully recreate their symptoms. And it's always beneficial to do it with an arterial line. We do get more information. And so, you know, some patients say, look, I, I'll do the exercise test, but I don't want it to be invasive. And this is a great first step. You can do the bicycle test without the arterial line. But you, you do miss out on some important data, but it's a way to at least get the communication between the heart and the lungs. So um, the something to think about is like, what benefit does the arterial line give you? And it's, it usually tells us um, at very constant, consistent intervals during that exercise, you know, what is their arterial oxygen saturation doing? So we can measure their pulse ox through their finger, but it's not very accurate. But if we actually get the information through the artery, artery, we can see, okay, what's their oxygen saturation? How is the alveoli arterial oxygen pressure different? And, you know, what is that in relation to the physiological dead space that we're seeing? The cool thing about the, the arterial line, too, is we get to see lactic acid thresholds and how that responds uh, like what it does in the body, and is it a reasonable response to exertion? And that you definitely just can't get without an arterial line. So that's the first type of testing. So patients sitting on the bike, 
with or without the arterial line. Their workload is pedaling the, their, their bicycle. The second test that is really not well known um, and very few facilities perform it is a continuous laryngoscopy with exercise. Oh. So, I know, right? So, for all of you who aren't sure what a laryngoscopy is, it's a small scope that um, is typically inserted through um, the nasal passages. It drops down um, right above the larynx so you can visualize the vocal cords and their movement during exercise. And so to be very clear here, the, the patient's going to exercise with a scope in their nose. That, and I'm sure no matter how small that scope is, it's not small enough. Well, if we do numb the nose. And um, usually patients say once that initial insertion happens, if they actually keep their chin up, it feels weird to swallow, but it's not painful in any way. Oftentimes, you know, they, they do forget that it's there because they have so much else going on. We put EKG leads on them. Um, they are harnessed in. It's a treadmill exercise test. So it's it can be completed on a bike if we need to, but it's often harder to recreate vocal symptoms in patients on a bicycle for whatever reason. So we typically will have them on the treadmill. So it's harder to pair work, right? Because on a bicycle, you're pedaling and we can ex- increase that workload. But on a treadmill, where does work come from? It's a bit harder. So typically, if we don't recreate, um, you know, their symptoms in a standard increase of effort as we increase the miles per hour on the treadmill, then what we'll do is we'll either do sprints or incline. And that re- kind of recreates the work needed to produce laryngeal symptoms. So here's the difference, right? Well, why should I choose a bike test over a continuous laryngoscopy? Is the bike test is it tells me, you know, I'm just not sure where my defi- deficit is. Is it the heart or the lungs? And that's a great start. The continuous laryngoscopy says something's wrong with my voice box. And often patients will say, I have really noisy breathing. I feel like I can't breathe. And therefore, I get short of breath when I exercise. They'll even describe a strider type sound. And that's your tip off. Okay, if I can't catch it on a resting laryngoscopy, then, you know, some people will have all these crazy tests performed. Like, oh, I went to the doctor and they ran me up and down the stairs. And then decided to do the laryngoscopy. And I told them by the time I sat down, my symptoms were gone. And that's usually the case. So we watch it from their vocal um, vocal motion from start to finish. And inevitably, we catch it because it goes away pretty fast. Yeah, vocal cord dysfunction, I feel like, um, at least in community practice, a lot of ENTs don't feel very comfortable in diagnosing. Um, some have even said it doesn't exist. Um, so it's very difficult when you are very suspicious that a patient has vocal cord dysfunction causing their breathlessness. They're not responding to inhalers, lung functions normal. You're not provoking them, you know, in the PFT lab, you know, at rest and their flow loops look normal. You're not getting the flattening that would kind of cue you in that something is going on, um, in their airway. Uh, so it's very difficult. And, and I've had ENTs run their patients up and down the stairs and then say it's a normal exam. So that's nice to know that's not the end all and be all of that diagnostic workup that they can then go to university or, you know, some other tertiary care center that does do this exercise induced laryngeal 
you know, evaluation. So what other types of laryngeal obstructions do you guys see outside of vocal cord dysfunction? So on that test, we, I have to say 90% of the time pick up exercise induced laryngeal obstruction or what we call ILO. I'd say maybe 5%, maybe we pick up, um, you know, an upper thoracic like closure, but it's, it's really hard to pick up. Um, and it's really rare for sure. Um, and otherwise we see, you know, we've seen cartilage in the way that wasn't supposed to be there. The adenoids are too big. So they kind of fold in. So it's not always the vocal folds themselves, but it's the structures around that larynx that kind of can be like overly large, um, that create obstruction. And so therefore they can't get the air in that they need to. But patients will often say they have really noisy breathing. And and don't be deceived. Let me put this out there. We always think that if there's some weird abner like weird line on their inhale of their PFTs, they must have vocal the vocal cord dysfunction. And that's really not the case. So some people can just be out of practice. Like maybe they're not um, doing the, their pulmonary function testing properly. And so I saw plenty of patients with great flow loops, you know, amazing flow loops. You would never think they have vocal cord dysfunction. And then you get them exercising and their vocal folds are very, very close together. And you think, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe this didn't show up. And so it's it, historically we thought, well, if it's there on that inhale breath, it means there's a problem with the vocal cords. But what we see is it's really not true. Also, to kind of speak to the provocation part of it, um, what we find is that you really have to provoke them. Like these patients are working really hard um, to recreate their symptoms. And it can be scary because what the body does is it learns to back off. So if you're not in a safe, controlled environment, there's no way you're going to recreate the symptoms. Like running up and down the stairs um, with a doctor or maybe their assistant and then sitting in a chair while they like throw a laryngoscopy in there. That seems terrifying to me rather than in a very controlled way, place the laryngoscopy, put me on a treadmill attached to a harness because if I suddenly can't run anymore and I fly like Superman, (laughs) the harness catches me. So, and the laryngoscopy is attached to a helmet. So it's not going anywhere. And I can be in a really safe space where there's people around me encouraging me saying, look, it's going to be okay. I I know this is going to be coming. And we see it and they get really excited because they're like, yeah, it's not all in my head. It's it's real. Right? Yeah. That validation of their symptoms is always so great to provide them that I, I believe you. There's something wrong. I just can't find it. So I need to send you for <laughs> this testing and I'm sorry for what they're going to do to you. Um, right. Can I let's go back a little bit to CPET. Um, what are the most common things that you see on CPET uh, for patients who've been worked upside down and backwards for their breathlessness? What are the most common things that you see? Yeah. So I think you have to think about, you know, we are looking at the communication between the heart and the lungs. So what gets a patient to stop exercising? Like during this test, why does the patient stop exercising? And it's either because they've reached their max heart rate, we can't exercise above our max heart rate. So if they actually achieve their max heart rate and they stopped exercising, that's a pretty normal test. We're pretty satisfied with that. Sometimes they reach their ventilatory ceiling and that's usually like a pulmonary issue um, or there's an issue with their gas exchange. 
So again, like three reasons why patients would stop exercising. Max heart, they reach their max heart rate, they reach their ventilatory ceiling, or there's a gas exchange issue. So when you say, well, what do I see? It's usually normally, I think say most of the time it's like a cardiac limitation. Um or it's overly obvious a pulmonary issue. And this can be really muddled, right? If patients are taking um, beta blockers, for example, like can they really reach their cardiac ceiling? No, oftentimes they don't. So that's one thing to kind of be aware of. Or if a patient has known COPD or known ILD, you know, they're going to max towards their ventilatory ceiling pretty quickly, right? And so you have to kind of keep these considerations in your mind when you're interpreting the tests. But this also kind of feeds into the third exercise test that's not very well known as well. And that's the CPET testing with arterial line and the placement of a right heart cath. So it's like one extra step because when you say, okay, well, what do you see on an exercise test? But it's also what we're not catching. And sometimes with patients with comorbidities, they need that extra placement of the right heart cath to see, well, is this actually a preload issue in the heart? Is this an issue with the contractility of the heart or is it an afterload issue? Is this pulmonary hypertension that hides because it can't be found on an echo? It can't be found on a stress test that it really requires max exertion. And some people say, well, it doesn't seem fair. Like my patient can't walk up the stairs, right? And and I think they have pulmonary hypertension, but I can't find it. So the only way to really find it is really asking them to complete this max exertional test with that line in place. And that's the most invasive testing we have. So when you think of the CPET as a concept of a whole, right, you have a, a CPET without arterial line. We get information. It's it's really good baseline information for patients without comorbidities. Once you add on the comorbidities, I think you need the A-line in the very least. And then if you're like, well, I know they have comorbidities. I, I really am not sure if pulmonary hypertension is a factor, but given their the history of the comorbidities, like maybe they have COPD for 20 years, or maybe they have advanced interstitial lung disease, and you feel like the pulmonary hypertension is hiding, you always ask for the CPET with the arterial line with the right heart path. And sometimes we'll do like a stepwise process. So where you're hoping to catch what we need to catch without doing the right heart path. And sometimes patients have to do two tests. It's hard to know. And it's definitely this experimental world. And that's why I love it. The patient will present and you're like, okay, what are the steps in order to find out how do I recreate your symptoms? And then how do I figure out what's really happening and what do I do with you? Yeah. How about patients who present where, you know, unfortunately, I see a lot of patients who the primary care or cardiology has kind of brushed them off as obesity and deconditioning. Um, And you, you know, they're, they're, it just seems out of proportion, you know, what do you see on, on exercise testing that would lean a little more towards it? Well, the patient is, is deconditioned, you know, for their weight or for that type of thing, but the rest of the testing looks okay. What does that look like for you on, on the CPET side? Yeah. So deconditioning screams low cardiac threshold. So they're not going to be able to reach their, their max cardiac output. 
that's usually deconditioning. All things being normal, right? Right. All things being normal, that's the only factor. We'll basically call it deconditioning. And then we'll talk to them about, you know, weight loss, um, reintroduction to exercise. And, and that's where it gets sticky in the medicine world because we don't really have a way to reintroduce them to exercise that is, feels satisfying right now. Um, so we do have this process where we, if it is true deconditioning without comorbidities, just obesity, um, luckily for us at National Jewish, we have a metabolic clinic. And so we'll send the patient to the metabolic clinic. Number one um, rule for the metabolic clinic is they have to be willing and wanting to lose weight. So it's a pretty rigorous program. And then two, we have them start with physical therapy. Like what's their baseline exercise tolerance? And then once they meet that, the physical therapy group and the providers will talk and say, okay, well, where can we push them next? And oftentimes it can take a year to two years to get these patients on track. And then we can always reassess with another CPET. Like, can they meet their max cardiac output now? And does it feel satisfying for them? Sometimes we go by symptoms. Sometimes we recreate the test. So I'm hearing you say it's okay to send patients who are obese and deconditioned to make sure that really is the problem. Oh, for sure. I mean, like I said at the beginning, our goal is to get everyone exercising. And if you're having a limitation to exercise, my job is to figure out why. And if, it, if it's obesity, let's work with that. If it's, you know, um, one thing we'll talk about in the next podcast is um, breathing pattern disorder is a huge bit of what we see in this clinic. Um, it was traditionally a wastebasket diagnosis but it, what it means is that the patient has this erratic breathing and they're hyperventilating and they need help just as much as the patient with obesity. So, yes, send anybody who would like to exercise and they're not sure if the limitations are actually real or something that they can work with in a way of correcting. Do you guys modify anything for patients who have physical limitations otherwise? So a great example of like those patients that you just don't know what to do with would be somebody who is breathless with exertion and normal testing thus far. Um, they're, they're just working harder than they should, but they also have some locomotion issues. They got a bad knee. They've got a bad hip. They're walking with a cane and they're saying just walking from their bedroom to their bathroom you know, is is exhausting for them. They just can't breathe doing it. Oxygen levels are okay on exertion. You know, you've looked at all of those types of things, but you know that they've got this other physical limitation that's making them work harder just to do simple tasks. What do you guys do with those patients or are you able to modify your testing for them? Yeah, good question. You know, it, it is a little hard. They have to be able to bike or walk on the treadmill. And, you know, I had one patient scheduled for a treadmill test and no awareness because it was an outside referral that they, she was going to be running, walking to run that day. And she's like, there's no way I'm, walk I'm walking to run on the treadmill. I just can't. Um, and my, my knee is bad and the impact hurts. And so we threw her on, on the bike. She's I can totally bike. It's okay with me. So I think if the patient's willing to be flexible, they, they do have to walk to run right? And if walking is their maximum exertion, then they'll just walk or bicycle because we have to recreate 
enough work for them to recreate their symptoms. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Are there any other patients that maybe you see very late in the game because maybe they, you know, the referring specialist didn't feel like they met criteria to get exercise testing or, or patients that maybe we're not thinking of in general practice? It's never too late. Right. I think that's the important thing. Um, I feel like it can be too early, but it's really never too late. And what do I mean by that is it's sometimes it's more frustrating when for a patient, they're coming to an exercise clinic and we perform all these tests at rest. Right. And then they say either, you know, I don't understand why you're doing this. I my problems with exercise. And that's the hardest patient to work with. It's not the patient who has all this testing done at rest. Mm-hmm. And they're like, look, I came here for an exertional test and I'm hoping you solve my problems. I'm like, I hope I solve your problems too. Um, but it's it's never too late, I think. Um, and that's the important thing to remember. Like if you have a patient that's really struggling and maybe you worked on deconditioning, maybe you worked on the reintroduction to exercise and you've done all you can, we're a great resource. And I tell patients right up front, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to be curious. That's a great quote. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this. I'm really excited for part two, which is the dysfunctional breathing clinic that you have and talking to patients about how to breathe, which sounds so silly, but so brilliant at the same time. So hopefully everybody will join us for that second episode. Thank you again for listening and please like, subscribe, follow anything you can with the podcast that helps APAP bring you more free content in the future. And thank you again, Corey, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Corinne. It was fun. See you guys again next time.